few years ago, we had an interesting conversation with Glenn Massey, who was at that time our college pastor. The we were the other um, pastors here at Alliance, and Glenn was talking about how college students, college students valued what he called authenticity in worship. We asked what that meant. He, he said, well, they don't like things to be too polished, too rehearsed, too practiced. In fact, he said, they actually like it when something doesn't go quite right, when there's some hiccup in the service. Someone forgets to make an announcement. They run up on stage and they mumble over themselves, so they really like me. The, 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 the worship team has to start over because they're in the wrong key or they start singing the wrong song, things like that. That, he said, is what they see as authentic. Other words may be real or raw or imperfect. By the way, you may be interested to know that the words authentic and authenticity don't actually appear in the Bible. Perhaps sincere genuine or honest are, are better words, but the truth is those are different words. You see, our culture defines authenticity as being true to oneself, being real, being who you are, being transparent, which, by the way, transparent isn't in the Bible either. So this conversation was interesting because we intentionally tried to pursue what we call, quoting John Piper, uh, undistracting excellence. That is, we want things to go smoothly. Not perfectly, that's not the goal, but we want to pursue excellence so people are not put off by unnecessary distractions or mistakes. Now, to be clear, mistakes are not necessarily sin, but we do try to eliminate them. But such mistakes are seen as genuine, real authentic. And I suppose I understand that. It, it's the same reason that you lean forward in your seats when I step away from the podium. Because you know that I'm going off script and you're waiting for me to make some mistake and put my foot in my mouth, as I often do. Now, sometimes people criticize my sermon preparation and delivery or the worship team's meticulous preparation on Thursdays. That criticism goes like this. You guys write everything out and normally stick to the script, which does not allow room for the Holy Spirit in the service. That, that, that sounds so spiritual, but such criticism does not allow for the Holy Spirit to be in my office during the week when I'm writing. Or when Hunter is preparing the worship service. It doesn't allow for the worship team to hear from the Spirit on Thursdays when they rehearse, which I suppose is inauthentic, this practicing. It's funny. I can remember those days before this church, in my younger days, when you would walk into the auditorium and the song leader would be over by the piano picking some songs with the pianist. Now, that was painful. You know what I'm talking about. Now, I suppose we could have a rousing discussion about all of that, but my concern is this. Is it possible that this pursuit of authenticity, being true to yourself, has replaced the pursuit of holiness. 
because I'm going to suggest we shouldn't be ourselves. One author suggests in recent years, evangelical Christianity has made its imperfection a point of emphasis, almost a badge of honor. We're just a bunch of sinners saved by grace, and that is true. But upon what do we focus? The sin or the grace that saves and enables spiritual growth? Here are some questions. Has the evangelical church become more concerned about being real, raw, authentic than being holy, righteous, Christ-like? Have we become more committed to being true to ourselves than true to our faith? I'm just a broken sinner. You're just a broken sinner. Let's celebrate our brokenness together. Rather than celebrating our redemption and encouraging and admonishing one another to pursue righteousness, to be like Jesus. You see, that is what a Christian or a Christ follower is. He or she is a disciple, someone who wants to be like his or her master, which means ruler, sovereign. Have we lost that in our pursuit of authenticity? Many suggest so. And so, for example, we end up with a book entitled Messy Spirituality, God's Annoying Love for Imperfect People. Now, to be clear, that's true. But, but do we go from accepting our messiness to celebrating our, our messiness? I don't, haven't read the book, don't like the title. And further then, you can buy Christian stuff like sweatshirts or coffee mugs that say, I love Jesus, but I cuss a little. Then stop. <laughs> you can attend churches with names like Scum of the Earth, Salvage Yard, Triple X Church. Really? Messy church. There's actually a whole movement of churches by that name. Listen, you can come to Alliance if you want a messy church, but we don't want to be. You can go visit websites with names like anchoredmess.com, modernreject.com, wrecked.org with categories like a hot mess, muddling through, and my wreckage. And so the author I quoted earlier goes on to write, but by focusing on brokenness as proof of our realness and authenticity, have evangelicals turned being screwed up, his words, into a badge of honor, its own sort of works righteousness, has authenticity become a higher calling than, say, holiness? You get what you see. I am who I am. You can't change me. Well, maybe God wants to. If you weren't with us last week, we finished the book of Hebrews. I begin a sabbatical this summer. Every five years of service, the church gives its pastors a three-month sabbatical, which means I don't want to start the next book, which will be First Peter. So that leaves about four 
weeks, um, that leaves about four weeks, giving me the opportunity to discuss some elephant-in-the-room topics, what Steve subtitled, Topics Too Big to Ignore. Now, we could just call it Things Bugging Scott. But I'm not sure that sounded spiritual, but hey, it's authentic. (laughs) There are things like this week, has authenticity replaced holiness? Lord willing, next week, evangelism includes proselytizing, winning those in other religions. Some see that as wrong. Or the inevitable end of the sexual revolution, which I would suggest is the result of being true to yourself. I'm not positive what I'll cover the fourth week, but I can assure you it'll be fun and controversial because then I get to leave. (laughs) Today I want to encourage us by reminding us, listen carefully, That brokenness is a means to an end, but not the end. Perhaps better said, brokenness is on the path to the end, but is not the pursuit. Hebrews told us to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. In fact, I would say, brokenness is not something to celebrate, but something to mourn. It ought to grieve us when a brother or sister falls into sin. It ought to rip our hearts out. Holiness is what we should pursue, celebrate, and encourage in one another. Now, even as I say that, I understand, I know, I'm a person. I understand that we're broken. I have said in the past that I want Alliance to be a hospital where broken people can come and find grace and healing and forgiveness, not more condemnation, and I still believe that. We don't stay there. I talked about this last week when I suggested that as redeemed followers of Jesus, we now have the ability, as redeemed followers of Jesus, we now have the ability to sin and the ability to not sin. Again, not teaching sinless perfection. We still live in broken bodies, with broken people, in a broken world, with the enemy of our souls lurking about opposing us. But we have the ability by the indwelling presence and power of the Holy Spirit to say no to sin, and we should. And we should personally and corporately be pursuing holiness, encouraging it in, a, in others and celebrating its victories and mourning its defeats. To be clear, this message is not to encourage legalism. That's not what I'm talking about. It, it is not to discourage repentance, confession of sin, transparency, a recognition of our great need of grace. In fact, I would say that we need to confess and repent regularly. We should do that more often so that we can change. Not so that misery loves company. Not so that we can sit in it together as if we are being authentic. 
Clearly, James tells us to confess our sins to one another. First John tells us, confess our sins to God. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And by the way, that's a, not a salvation verse. That is a sanctification verse. In other words, it's written to believers encouraging us to continue to confess our sin as we pursue holiness. In fact, John goes on to say, if we say we have no sin... Writing to believers, we're lying, one of his favorite words. But then he writes, goes on to, to write, but, but I know you sin, but obey God's commands. Walk in the truth. If we continue in sin, listen, as a practice of life, the truth is not in us. John says, I, I know most of us are aware of 1 Timothy 1. It's a glorious verse which can bring great encouragement, trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among who I, Paul, am the foremost of all. You see, Paul recognized that he was the worst of, of sinners. True. But, but it is his way of celebrating God's grace in his life. He is not celebrating his brokenness or his rebellion. Look at the verse in its context. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and persecutor, violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And, and the grace of our Lord Jesus was, was more than abundant. Yet my sin was great, but God's grace was greater. And it changed me. With the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus, trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all, yet, and stay there, for this reason I found mercy so that in me as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Do you see the emphasis is... On, not on who he was, but God's grace that saved him and changed him and made him faithful in service, an example of mercy, a recipient of God's perfect patience. And Paul did not continue his, in his blasphemous life. He repented and God changed him. Not in my notes, it came to mine in the first service. Uh, how many of you have ever heard of Nikki, uh, read the book Run, Baby, Run? Anybody? Have to be older. Never even heard of it, have you? By Nicky Cruz. I looked it up. He's still alive. Lives in Colorado Springs. I got to meet him on one occasion. And I read the book. I read the book several times as a young adult. And I have to tell you why I read the book. Because the first 45 minutes, he celebrated his brokenness. And there were things in that book that Christians should not read. And it was attractive to my flesh. And you get three quarters into the way of the book. And he finally, after talking about himself and how bad he was, he finally started talking about the grace of God that changed him. We will be in 1 John in about a year, give or take. But let's spend a few minutes there this morning to address this concern, admittedly, that I have. What I am suggesting is the church mistakenly replacing holiness with authenticity, celebrating grace in our brokenness rather than grace in our forgiveness in our pursuit of holiness. 
generally agree. The Apostle John, who wrote the Gospel of John, wrote this letter later in his life for two reasons. First, to expose false teachers. And second, he, he was writing to give believers assurance of salvation. I want to focus on that second purpose. How can I know for sure that I'm a Christian? You ever had that? Have you had some doubts before? Maybe for, for some days or some weeks, or maybe it's been for years. How do I know I'm really a Christian? Maybe if I just pray the prayer again. How can I have confidence that I truly know, that Je- know Jesus as my Lord and Savior? Most agree this aged apostle gives three tests by which, three tests by which you can examine yourself to know if you are truly in the faith. And by the way, you must pass these tests to know you are a Christian. Two out of three, not good. You must pass these to know that you're in the faith. The three are the theological test, the relational test, and the moral test. Let's look briefly at the first two, although they are critically important. The first is the theological test introduced in chapter 2. Who is the liar? One of his favorite words. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Listen, that's Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son, listen carefully. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. Maybe this will be my fourth lesson, uh, fourth sermon. I don't know. But it concerns me the number of people who call themselves Christians who say, I think Jesus is nice, but he's not necessary. What do I mean? Well, you can believe another religion. You don't have to believe in Jesus to go to heaven. That's not what the Bible says. If you deny that Jesus is the Christ, you don't have God. You don't have the Father. Clear theological test is this, to pass to pass, you must believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, as Peter proclaimed in Matthew 16. In order to be saved, to be a Christian, in order to have sins forgiven, you must believe Jesus is God in the flesh. It's n- non-negotiable. It says in chapter 4, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh from the Father is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. That is the spirit of Antichrist, of which you've heard is coming, it's already here. It goes on to say, we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son, His Son, to be the Savior of the world. There is no other. The Scripture is clear on this. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. If you don't confess that Jesus is the Son of God, notice, the divine Son of God, you, you don't have God. Jesus is not only nice, he is absolutely necessary. I think that makes the point. The theological test is confession of the Christological deity of Jesus, which brings us to the second test, the relational test. He has much to say about this in his short letter. To pass the relational test, let me tell you what it is. Right here is one question or, or, or one statement. You must, you must love other Christians. They are, after all, family, brothers, and sisters in Christ. Look at these verses. Chapter 2. Beloved, I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment. It's decades old now. He's writing when he's an old man, which you have heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. When did they hear it? It was in the upper room when Jesus said said to them at the Last Supper, by this shall all men, that new commandment I give to you, 
that you love one another. By this shall all people know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. If you don't have love for one another, you are not his disciple. By this time, it was an old commandment. You know this. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother in darkness. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling. But the one who hates his brother in the darkness, walks in darkness, does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So clearly the relational test that you must pass, this is pass-fail, all three. You must pass if you profess to be a Christian. You must love other Christians. You must love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, in my preparation for this particular sermon, I did a lot of reading, articles, blogs, for example, and because of the stream in which I landed by Googling the topic, I guess they're kind of interwoven, there were lots of articles on that went something like this, why I left the church. Yes, we've all heard people are leaving the church, not the big C church. They're careful to say that I still believe in Jesus. I haven't left the universal church, but I'm leaving the little C church. Why? Lots of reasons given, but most of them revolve around this idea. I don't like Christians. They're embarrassing. They're unkind. They are arrogant, whatever. And it is true. Come on. It is true. Christians can be jerks. Look around the room. I didn't call you jerks. See, that was a slip of the tongue. Not in my notes. But you cannot leave them. You can't say, well, I love Jesus, but it's his people I can't stand, so I'm leaving the church. Talk about arrogance. You've got it figured out and nobody else does? Of course Christians are imperfect, but it's what we have. We are family. We need one another. I'm very concerned. That's a very nice way to say it. I'm very concerned when I hear people leaving the church because they don't like their brothers and sisters. You cannot do that. I'm not talking about a Sunday morning gathering. I'm talking about life in the church together, which includes this. Yes, but it isn't just this. Consider a couple of the passages in the first John, it's all over the book, chapter 3, for this is the message which you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not like Cain, who was of the evil one, slew his brother, and for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil. Cain was evil, and Abel was righteous. Don't be surprised if the world hates you, like Cain, who are unbelievers, of course they're going to hate you. We know that we have passed out of death into life. We're not of the world any longer because we love the brothers. We love each other. He who does not love, you're still in the world. You you abide in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. I know those are strong words. And you say, well, I don't really hate my brothers and sisters. I just don't like them. Or I I don't really want to be with them, so I've left the church. I am suggesting that that is a serious problem. How can you say you love them if you don't want to be with them? It says further in chapter 4, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Well, loves who? Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another, proving that we have been born of God. If we don't love one another, we've not been born of God. It's, It's what he says. I could go on and on, already have. 
but I think we get the point. So the first is the theological test that you believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The second, relational test. You love the family of God. You love your brothers and sisters. And the third and last test is, is the one on which I want to focus for a moment, the moral test, and it goes like this. If you confess Jesus as Lord, you must seek to obey his commands. You pursue holiness. You want to be like Jesus. I'm deeply concerned that our pursuit of authenticity, in our pursuit of authenticity, we just sit around and celebrate our mutual brokenness rather than encouraging mutual holiness. Like the second test, this is all over chapter two. By this we know that we have come to know him. This is how we know. You want to know if you're a believer? This is how we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. We don't keep his commandments to know him. This is how we know that we have come to know him. We keep his commandments. The one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. Truth's not in him. Seems clear. To pass the moral test, you must seek to keep his commands as a way of life. I want to say that again, as a way of life. Because it will sound like in some of the verses I'm getting ready to read, that if we sin at all, then we don't know God. Not true. We must remember chapter 1, where John told us to confess our, keep on confessing our sins. And the one who says that he has no sin is a liar. So, so the truth here, yes, we sin, but we still seek to obey God's word. God's commands is a practice of life. It describes our lives. We are characterized by obedience. The one who walks in sin as a quality of life, John says that you don't know God. If I talk to your friends, if I talk to your neighbors, if I talk to your family and say, tell, tell me about John, and they say, he's a horrible sinner, you don't know God. The one who walks in righteousness is a quality of life, is a true believer, not perfect, but is a way of life. Back to chapter two, whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has been truly perfected. By this we know that we are in him. How? The one who says he abides in God ought himself to walk in the same manner as he, that is Jesus, walked. If you call yourself a disciple, a follower of Jesus, you must walk as Jesus walked. Now, I only read those verses to tell you this very brief story. When our boys were very young, one day we were doing family devotions in First John. I read this verse and asked them, what do you think it means to walk as Jesus walked? They were silent for a moment, and one of them, the five-year-old, said, you know, in sandals and everything. <laughs> it was a good guess, not quite right. Chapter 2, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. You don't practice righteousness as a way of life. You are not born of him. Chapter 3 is key. Everyone who has this hope, the hope of Christ's return, fixed on him, the return of Christ, purifies himself just as he is pure. 
Everyone who practices as a way of life sin also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. In him there is no sin. Now, one who abides in him, uh, excuse me, no one who abides in him sins as a way of life. No, No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin, what's he say? Of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. To destroy the works of the devil, which is sin in you. No one is born of God No one who is born of God practices sin, again, as a way of life, because his seed, God's seed, abides in him, and he cannot sin because he's born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. He throws that in at no extra charge. I'll say this very gently. If there is no difference between you as a professing follower of Jesus and the world who don't profess to know Jesus, if there is no difference, you're still in the world. It's clear that we are to purify ourselves by the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God. We are to say no to sin and yes to righteousness, Romans 6. We are no longer slaves of sin. We are slaves of righteousness. Yes, we are broken, but we are to pursue holiness. Let us not celebrate our brokenness as a badge of honor. Let us celebrate our redemption and the grace that He gives both to redeem us and to make us both positionally and practically holy. How holy? Be perfect, even as I am holy. That's God. Let's put all this together as we close by reading John's summation of this letter in the first few verses of chapter 5. We've not looked at chapter 5 yet. These three tests, the theological, the relational, and moral tests, will practically jump off the page. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Theological test. And whoever loves the father loves the child born of him. Relational test. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. Moral test. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Meaning they're not bad. They're not, you can do it. They're good for you. For Whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Who is the one that overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. He he brings it full circle. Those are the three tests. How do you know that you're a Christian? Verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. You want to know how you have eternal life? It's not because you prayed a prayer in the past. Not because you walked an aisle, signed a card, shook a hand. It's because you passed these tests. You believe in Christ as the Son of God, the Savior of the world who came to die for sinners. I believe the evangelical church proclaims that one pretty well. 
You love the church, the family of God, brothers and sisters in Christ. You, you actually like the people here and want to be with them. We need to work on that one. And third, we seek to keep his commands. We want to be holy. We pursue and celebrate not our mutual brokenness, but our personal and corporate pursuit of God.